Support for A Life of Dogs is brought to you by Royal Canin. Royal Canin offers precise, effective nutrition for dogs based on size, age, breed, and to address specific needs. To learn more about Royal Canin, visit them on the web at royalcanin.com. And by Highland Canine Training, the industry leader in professional dog training solutions and premier canine education. Highland Canine Training offers turnkey solutions for everyone, from pet owners to law enforcement and military organizations. Learn more at highlandcanine.com. These dogs are, they're well taken care of. They're the elite athletes. They have to be to get there. Yes, physiologically, these dogs, you know, dogs out of any species are incredible. Yeah, did a rod. For 49 years, this iconic race has stood as the pinnacle of dog sporting events. A team of dogs and their human musher courageously braved the elements for days, traveling over a thousand miles over the Alaskan wilderness in a partnership like no other. They must diligently withstand storms, obstacles, and wildlife, constantly pushing forth to make it back home and across the finish line. This is not a feat for just any team of dogs or any musher. Both the dogs and the people who partake in the Iditarod are incredible athletes. They must perform at their best, both mentally and physically. What kind of dog does it take to embrace such a challenge? And what goes into developing an athlete capable of doing so? From a life of dogs, I'm Jason Ferguson, and this is Peak Performance. I started racing the Iditarod for my rookie or my first year in 1980 when um, I was living in western Alaska in Bethel, actually, where last year's champion Pete Kaiser is from. And um, my goal, I've done a lot of winter travel, but I hadn't um, done much with dog teams. I've owned dogs all my life, but I hadn't, you know, actually had them in teams. And... um, so my goal was to just travel across the state of Alaska because it was just thrilling. And um, with the way or, you know, the, that I most enjoy, which is dogs, I, I just love being with dogs and having, you know, not a million dogs, but having a numerous dogs that have tasks to do. I mean, training dogs is my passion. And I... Um, was was a biologist out there for the state of Alaska at the time. And so I would train at night and on the weekends. And then, um, you know, I, I back in those days, we didn't have any uh, qualifiers. I mean, the race was only eight years, or eight years old at the time. And this year was its 48th running. And when I went out, I, I have to say, you know, it was, um, overwhelming is probably the best thing to say. Just seems like such a monumental um, task. And the best, you know, best advice I got from anybody was, "You take care of your dogs, and they'll take care of you." This is Dee Dee Genre, a world-class musher with an impressive record. She is a three-time runner-up in the Iditarod race and possesses the fastest time ever recorded for a woman finisher. She has completed the race over 22 times with her dog team, as well as other sled dog races all over the world. But when I started that race in 1980, I hadn't ever finished 
a long distance race, nor had any of the dogs in my team. We were we were all rookies, and um, I just you know became uh, focused. I I mean the one thing I knew how to do was feed dogs and take care of and talk to and you know be around dogs. As far as knowing as much sports medicine as I know about them now, it wasn't even a clue. Most of that wasn't even you know thought of. But um, I entered that race in 1980 and ended up, there were 36 scratches that year, and I ended up finishing 24th and meeting for the first time Martin Boozer, who finished 22nd right in front of me with a uh, purebred Siberian team. And that was his rookie year, and we, we became friends. We didn't know each other as well as we do now, but uh, we became friends out there. I can, I'll never forget, he was feeding the dogs in White Mountain, and we're all, like, fixated on trying to make sure they get hydration and that everything we give them is plenty moist enough. And his Siberians were saying, eh, nah, I don't want that stuff. And he poured it out on the snow, and gobbled. they gobbled it up. And... He goes, these silly dogs think the whole world is a big dog dish. Just as Martin Boozer's dogs demonstrated, Huskies are born to love the snow. But what really makes a good sled dog? What is the magic ingredient that separates a dog from a successful Iditarod athlete? Dee Dee explains. They're bred for function, and they're bred for purpose. So... You know, these are dogs that are bred because they've got a good digestive system. They've got a good insulative properties. They've got good feet. They've got a mind for it. They, they want to please. Um, you know, they're really uh, dogs that are uh, wanting to run and pull. I mean, that's the biggest thing is if you were to try to teach them, and I have over the years, obedience or agility or something, they're less eager for that than they are for just pulling. They're all about pulling. Getting a dog to pull a sled, even hundreds of miles or more, isn't difficult when it's what they live to do. Take it from a seasoned Iditarod veteran. Although a sled dog might run forever if they could, a massive amount of energy is required to successfully complete long races. So, how do mushers make sure that their dog team has enough energy to complete a race with enthusiasm to spare? Techniques, things of that nature. Plus, I had access to a bigger breeding pool. Um, And so, I raced for years, uh, not only dogs that I raised, but also I raced different kinds of races. I raced for four years in the Alps in a um, kind of a Tour de France format where I took 12 dogs to Europe and we raced stage racing throughout the Alps and then came home and a month later would race the Iditarod. And I had, um, my husband would keep my Iditarod team training in a long and slower pace while I was in Europe um, doing a faster uh, speed, but yet there was still distance. It was probably the longest run we ever did was about 70 miles in one day. And then, um, you know, I, I think I had some of my best successes in those years. I had second place in the Iditarod and third place in the Alpirod in a singular year. And 
that was pretty amazing for me. And it was um, definitely a huge learning curve for me because I learned that the dog's ability to deal with environmental changes, for instance, warmth uh, or mushy snow compared to 50 below and snow that's sugary and has no moisture in it at all, all of those things were different aspects of training and um, and and then as you would run through those different kinds of conditions, you had different kinds of encouragement for them. Uh, you know, like in warm weather, I snacked often, but with a watery kind of snack. In cold weather, I snacked often, but with a very fatty snack that would give them, you know, I never wanted to see um, too much variety in their um, metabolic sugar run, you know, I guess that's the best way to put it. But I was trying to always feed before they got tired, feed before they were hungry, water every opportunity that I could observe that they would be willing to take water and um, re- how the run rest schedules worked and different settings and stuff. And, you know, and I, I learned to adapt to individual dogs. And well, a good example was this one dog that I had that was just phenomenal he was a really good dog but he was shy and he didn't like to eat in public and I had him in Europe and you know I mean one day the start of one of our races there was hot air balloons and cross-country skiers over 10,000 people there and um he was he he, you know it's pretty obvious Perry wasn't going to eat in that situation so I um fed him inside the truck uh, you know, quietly by himself. And, oh, then he gobbled his food and his water up like that, fine. But it was like if people were watching him, eh, eh, not, not interested, don't want to. A good musher always puts the well-being of their dogs above their own. Being able to successfully do this, however, requires that a musher is so in tune with their team that they know exactly what they need and when. A musher has to understand what their dog is experiencing mentally and psychologically in order to take the best care of their dogs as possible. So, how do they do this? Dee Dee tells us how she learned about this and was able to overcome some of the pitfalls associated with high-level performance athletes. And I found out I was the same way. The harder I trained, the more intense my... Um, program was the less interested in eating I was, which was not good, not helpful. And I personally realized that I must. And, you know, dogs don't necessarily have that ability to uh, be rational. And so it gave me a new insight into what I needed to do and how I needed to um, present food and when I needed to present water and, you know, how to encourage them to keep their hydration up and things. And so uh, that, I think that is one of the hugest lessons was to put myself in their shoes and realize that some of the um, explanations that we had had about oh, they're just stressed out because they round through town or something like that, was more about training than it was about 
you know, the particular event. And uh, I, I just learned a phenomenal amount and about hydration and about recovery and about um, training, the amount of training at any one personal time when, when I needed to give a recovery day. You know, just following somebody else's schedule wasn't, wasn't the ticket. And, you know, I had great success with all of that. Feeding Iditarod sled dogs enough food is critical to optimizing their athletic capabilities. But simply feeding them is not enough. Feeding the correct type of food and adjusting it according to output and environmental factors is just as important. Working dog nutrition has become a science and one that mushers take very seriously. I think, you know, when I worked with some of these dogs, I think I might even have told you, you know, so I ended up working with some of the different nutritional companies, and Royal Canin was one that I was with for uh, 15 or so years, and so I got the opportunity to travel to Europe and see their um, facilities and see some of the different dogs that they had dealt with over there, and they were... um, in uh, collaboration with some of the herding dogs out of Spain and some other working breeds, you know. And it was fascinating to see how our working breed went with, you know, with theirs. And it was, I mean, I think, I think the canine world um, really gained a great deal in the, especially in the early 90s when there was no premium kibble dog food on the shelves in those days, you know. Nobody paid attention to the ingredients. But, of course, we did because performance was important. And um, then, you know, the, today you will find that anybody that has a working dog, and I mean a working dog being anything from a seeing-eye dog to, you know, a therapy dog to a herding dog and or maybe one of our Arctic racing dogs, they all pay a great deal of attention to nutrition. You know, they, they totally understand that um, just as we've learned in the Olympics, uh, we've learned that in basically the Olympics of dog behavior with the Iditarod. And the Iditarod has um, been able to uh, give researchers an opportunity to observe multiple dogs that are all in shape, that all are, you know, all have been taken carefully through a training season so that they are all athletic. They've been watched through their uh, uh, ECGs. They, They have blood work. They have all of this background and similar background. And then they can watch these dogs in performance and gain amazing information, just like we saw that big learning curve in Olympic athletes years ago. You know, now, it, there's small increments that make the difference. It used to be there was huge increments. Yeah, we see... Um Nutrition playing a big role in the uh, police dogs, service dogs, and working dogs that we train, definitely. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it, it makes a it's huge, so huge amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it makes a difference in what they are even capable of learning. Mushers love their dogs. In many instances, 
Their lives are completely dedicated to these incredible animals. The care, training, and health of their team is what not only enables them to cross the finish line, but also to know that they are doing everything possible to keep their team safe and happy. With knowing one's dogs also comes the responsibility of knowing how much to push them. Never, ever, ever tire of watching dogs. So watching dogs work, you know, going to any um, exhibit or anything, you know, is interesting to me. But so I, I, I go to as many opportunities as I possibly can. And I had seen Brett's team in the copper and I went, that team is solid. That's the word I could think of it. It's they, they aren't exuberant. They aren't um, tired. They are just solid, you know. And um, I, so when he came in behind Jesse, Jesse was uh, carrying a dog at that point. So her team looked like they had worked hard, um, probably carrying that dog in those big hills right before Ruby. And so, but I thought, oh, okay, well, these two teams, mm, Jesse drops that dog. She, she's going to be okay. Uh, and then in comes Thomas's team. And this team is just off the wall eager, happy banging he can hardly keep his hook in he's they've just come off a 90 mile run and i just went oh okay this this is the best team i have seen and then as the race went on you know i'm watching the team in different checkpoints and in comes this team that is riding a magic carpet and when i talked to um thomas he said those were basically three-year-olds they had never ever seen the red line they had never ever been driven to be to the point of okay we just got to get there you know they were only happy that's all they'd ever seen they'd been taken incrementally to each next distant uh distance and they were never overwhelmed and so they didn't know what that looked like and I got to tell you, I agree. I think he's telling the absolute truth because there's no way you can have a dog team that was as happy as that dog team was all the time without they never knew anything but happy. Running the Iditarod is not simply about the race. It's about the incomparable partnership that mushers share with their dog team. The magic that makes an Iditarod dog team doesn't stop at physical capability but it's deeply ingrained in a sled dog's being. These dogs are special. You know, they're not, they're not dogs that are bred in the backyard. They're not dogs that are um, always blow-dried and put in a, you know, show ring to go around in circles. And I have nothing against dogs that do that when they're looking for the best of the best in the breed. Nothing against that at all. But our dogs, we're looking for the best of the best on the trail in the trail setting, in utilizing the instincts God gave them for navigating storms, for finding trails, for, you know, being able to work in a partnership with man so that you avoid the hazards and you pursue the open trail when it's there. And, you know, I I can tell you, so I don't even have time to tell you, but all the times dogs, my leaders have, saved me from something around the corner I couldn't see, be it open water or a moose charging at us or, you know, some situation, a buffalo charging us as it did a few years ago. And my, my leader just 
dove under some deadfall and took the whole 15-dog team with him in there. And with that big, bull, elderly um, buffalo charging at us, nobody, nobody got clipped by a hoof. That, I mean, that, that kind of instinctive partnership between a dog and a man, between, you know, uh, drama... You can't, you can't fake that. You can't pretend that in the ring. You can't um, make that up, and you can't portray it really all that well on the screen. It's, it's a, it's a gut thing that I, I mean, I, I was just stunned. I was scared, scared, scared when that buffalo decided to turn and charge us. And I had already tried to move that buffalo off the trail, and I got kind of up close in front of my dog team, and I didn't even come up to his shoulders. And I went, "Whoa, I, I, I don't have, I don't have very many tools here." But, but my leader that I had spent all summer with the year before, one-on-one can across training to try to help him get the confidence that he could make those decisions. He, he did. He did it, and he saved all 15 dogs that were in that team. There are no words to truly describe the powerful partnership that the Iditarod Mushers have with their dog teams. It can be witnessed and felt in the cold Alaskan air as the teams take off and as they eventually cross the finish line at the end of the race. The bond between these teams is as unique as the race itself. As D.D. exemplified, if a musher takes care of their dogs, their dogs will take care of them. The well-being of the dog teams is at the forefront of the Iditarod's priority list. As much as the mushers work hard to keep their dogs safe and healthy, they can only do so much on their own. In order to ensure that every canine athlete is functioning at their very best and is fit to continue running, Plenty of veterinarians are present to conduct wellness checks before, during, and after the race. Next, we speak to Veronica Duvall, a veterinarian who volunteers days of her life each year to ensuring the Iditarod dog teams finish the race in as good a condition as they started. So my name is Veronica Duvall. I've been a vet, a veterinarian for over 30 years. Um, how I got involved? Well, that's a long story, but I would have to say, you know, first years out of vet school, I uh, adopted an injured Siberian Husky, and um, from there, it just—I uh, always had interest with the sporting dogs, but it just led me a little bit more down the rabbit hole, so to speak, and. Um, I uh, met some other veterinarians that lived up north, specifically in the Yukon, and I, you know, thought with this Siberian Husky, I wanted to learn a little bit more about the breed, and I volunteered. Uh, my first race was the Yukon Quest, and that was, <laughs> let's see, that was late 90s, so I've been involved with the sled dog sport for over 20 years. From that time, I've pretty much done almost a race a year. I went from the Quest to Iditarod, and now I'm back and forth with Iditarod. Not every year, but uh, one of the races that I also work with, and I just got back on Sunday, 
was uh, down in Wyoming, and it's a little bit of a different race. It's not um, a long-distance endurance. It's more of a, well, they call it a stage stop race based on the European races where there's uh, days of racing. So they do uh, 30 miles to 35 miles daily, different stages, so start and stop. Everybody's timed. And they kind of do like a Tour de France where the yellow bib goes out, the, you know, the fastest time is the last to leave. So it's, it's quite, um, it's a different, it's different, um, meaning, you know, these dogs are racing every day, but they are going much faster and it's not uh, endurance. It's, it's uh, sprint racing through the week. So that's uh, a little bit how I got involved. I'm sorry, it's a very long answer. <laughs> you got me talking about sled dogs, so... Um, and, uh, so I just, uh, had an interest and then it becomes, you know, you can talk to a number of us, um, that do this, you know, for years and we have, uh, certainly a special bond with our group. Um, we love the dogs. We love working with these athletes. Um, it's, there's nothing like it in practice. So, you know, it took me going through these years and I actually, um, developed, more specialty in sports medicine. I actually am a, a specialist in canine sports medicine, probably because of my involvement with sled dogs. So, um, yeah, so that's a, a, a long answer, but <laughs> that's where I fit in. Awesome. So do you feel like working with sled dogs has, to some degree, sort of helped you be a better vet or, or helped you in your veterinary career? Yeah, absolutely. I... I you know, from there, I wanted to, um, getting my hands on these dogs, and, you know, again, they are the elite athletes, so when do you ever get to, in practice, unless you become a specialist, to deal with these athletes, you know, in such a a very focused uh, time frame, you know, over the 10 days to two weeks, right? So, I would say yes, for sure, um, you know, because we are always palpating, and so I think you know, I know my skills of palpation have, have uh, you know, certainly escalated when I started working with these dogs in this in this type of um, quick little assessments, but having to pick up these things very, you know, very quickly. I mean, you know, we're talking these guys that are running all the time. So, you know, we're checking, we're doing orthopedic exams, you know, repetitively you know every day several times a day on all these dogs you know so yeah I would have to say for sure it's made me better at what I do with my hands um and certainly made me want to be in in general practice here focus on um what more can I do you know rather than just a a general practitioner that's again why I've gone into Uh, sports medicine and rehabilitation so yeah it's absolutely helped with that helping to care for the Iditarod dog teams is something that these vets are extremely passionate about as Veronica described volunteering in these races actually revolutionized her practice and her perspective on veterinary medicine as a whole but what motivates a veterinarian to become involved with the Iditarod anyways it becomes a, you know, I don't want to call it a bit of an addiction, but it is. Um, I like to be involved with the race, meaning um, as a veterinarian, we're not just policing, but we're there to improve the sport, make sure the dogs are healthy, 
make sure that um, we are behind, you know, what these dogs, um, they can't speak for themselves, but to make sure that this is exactly what they want to do. I want to make sure these dogs are happy and, you know, because they are bred to run, so they have that drive for sure. Um, the other thing is I've been involved in, in um, certainly the, the development of the sport over the years. A, a ton of research has gone into these sled dogs, and we've discovered many different things, in, you know, big ones in nutrition, exercise, physiology, um, what can apply to our animals, you know, our, 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 our pals at home. Right. So, um, that is why I'm involved. I, you know, I have this addiction. I love these dogs. I, you know, a lot of my friends have, uh, have come through this world. Um, you know, it's just, I, I guess it's just kind of part of the second nature to me to be involved in the race somehow. Um, and, you know, through that I've met, you know, I actually have Siberian Huskies. One is a retired sled dog. So it just becomes, you know, part of, of what we do. So uh, there is a number of us veterinarians that we do it every year. And I think you probably get the same answer that we just love the sport and we want to, you know, definitely be a part of that sport uh, for sure, you know, taking care of the dogs and making sure that they are, they're healthy and um, that we research to see if we can find, you know, what can help these dogs or just knowing what goes through their system. You know, we, I think uh, lately with some of these research, you know, finding out that long distance, just like in people, um, we can find that their immune systems can be a little um, compromised. And so we want to, make sure that, you know, the race is not, uh, you know, too stressful on them. So those are those things, but also just what we found with the dogs, these sled dogs being such incredible athletes and their, the amount of calories that they take in, um, it, there's nothing like it. And just how they are these little natural uh, physiological um machines to run these miles it's really i mean i don't want to use that term machine but i just think they really are incredible um creatures there's a special type of magic in the air during the iditarod a spectator can feel the energy radiating from the dog teams as they make their way across the starting line and it's an energy that is unique as the race itself the iditarod vets will be one of the first to tell bystanders that this race was life-changing for them, that working with these incredible animals has transformed their appreciation for dogs and what they're capable of. You know, we get, I think part of uh, Iditarod, you know, obviously it's what the, the dogs bring us all together. But sometimes it's just in those quiet moments that, uh, you know, maybe not, when the main main racers have gone by and we're at a checkpoint um, waiting, we have some dogs that are, you know, that are left behind, meaning they aren't, um, they're tired or, you know, there's something that has kept them behind, a sore wrist, or, and we're taking care of them. So it's kind of quiet. All the racers have gone through, and then we just have some time to, you know, um, prepare the checkpoint for closing. So we're getting the dogs flown out. And I think that's probably 
one of my favorite times is not being in the hype of the race because honestly it's just reactions when you're you're not you're just you know you're there you're helping them you're you know it is a race environment so we're you know number one we're taking care of the dogs but um, when we're just, you know, we have some time, whether it's a colleague or two or just the other volunteers at the checkpoint, I think, you know, and we're just having some laughs about who knows, right? We're so tired after that. So I think I don't have any one specific time, but I would say those are my memories that, you know, getting to know the villagers and because it is a very unique situation in Iditarod, you know, and, and depending on Northern route or Southern route, if, I go back, sometimes I don't see these people for a few years, and what's really crazy is that they remember my name, you know, from four years ago. So I think just those times, so not only with the dogs, but the dogs bring us all together, and we have a passion for, you know, the sled dog, and um, I think those are probably my most fondest memories with that. I mean, obviously the dogs, you know, when they are relaxed too, they do, you know, they are like dogs, you know, they're racing individuals, but they just, you know, they love hearing their name. They love, you know, getting the pets. So those are kind of, I would think my, the, the, the quiet times and the fun times for me. The quiet times and the fun times, those truly memorable moments, which happen once the excitement has died down and the world once again, seems quiet. Veronica is not the only vet who appreciates the beauty of the Iditarod. Many veterinarians, canine professionals, and dog lovers alike partake in this event. With nearly 50 dog teams racing at 16 dogs per team, it is imperative that there are enough vets to make sure that every dog is adequately checked and monitored. So how many veterinarians volunteer to help in the Iditarod? And what is it like? Yeah, there's usually about 40 veterinarians through the race. Now, that's not meaning that, you know, 40 stay, but from the start to the finish. Um, the head vet usually recruits about 40 veterinarians to help them through the race. Um, that's the magic number, and sometimes there's less, sometimes there's more, and there's a certain number of what they call rookie veterinarians, so their first Iditarod. They may not be rookies at all, veterinarians, but... Um, rookies meaning their first Iditarod so but usually it's about the 40 so that's all volunteers you know we take the time off to go and do the race so it is a little bit crazy but but that's what I'm saying yeah um, it's it there's nothing like it so so the next question I have is sort of prompted I've talked to again a number of mushers and they uh, particularly some of the more experienced ones talk about um, lack of sleep obviously right and and you know trying to plan mm-hmm. that um how is, does that have any impact on you guys at the um, at the checkpoints you know do you have tons of teams coming through at one time and as such you don't you don't get a lot of sleep or you know is it super exhausting or absolutely <laughs> yeah i you know depending on where you're working in the race for sure the first um number of checkpoints are a little insane of course we're you know we have a lot of vets on but i recall checkpoints on the early part of the race where there's eight seven to eight veterinarians and all of us 
would work for that early rush, um, and especially in the heavy years when there was a lot of races. I'm talking over 100 mushers. We would be eight, nine hours straight through all eight of us. So that doesn't seem like, I mean, it seems like a work day, right? If you say eight hours. Um, but um, when you get no breaks at all, right, um, and you're constantly, you're, you're, it's kind of like you do a little bit of triage, right? You're seeing these animals come through, making sure there's no, you know, severe issues and what is done. And these guys also are racing, so they don't have a lot of time, right? So the checkpoints are, if they're staying for a period of time, we go through, we assess them, but we try to check, well, we do, we check every dog that comes through. It might be a quick heart rate, you know, we're checking their hydration, we're, we're looking to see that um, there's, you know, there's no problems with dehydration, that they're running okay, that their, their color, their mucous membrane color is good, so all that, and then when they stay, we can do more detailed um exams so yes i would say also depending on how many days you do we do go through some sleep deprivation because you know these are it's a 24-hour clock so we do set up our times we take shifts but it's just you know that's kind of part of it it's uh i don't go to sled dog races to sleep you know i'm um we're out you know two three o'clock in the morning and um we're checking dogs, and I would say that was one, you know, we talk about the memory. I um, I recall one of those checkpoints, uh, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning, I don't know, and checking dogs, and um, clear sky, full moon, and one of the dogs starts howling, and then all the dogs start howling. That's pretty cool, right? <laughs> they're, they're all singing for probably a minute, and... Um, for no reason, I think just to say, hey, you know, everybody's calling out and then stop completely all at the same time. <laughs> Although the work they do at the Iditarod is demanding, the services provided by these vets is invaluable. The Iditarod is not the type of event that many people ever get the opportunity to experience for themselves. Because of this, we wanted to know what one of the most common misconceptions that people have about the race is. Veronica explains. Um, myth. Hmm. Uh, that's a good one. I that's a good question because it really has me thinking. Um. Hmm. I think. I don't. I don't. I mean, a myth is almost mystical, right? Like, so I. I guess um, misconception maybe is that these dogs are made to run. Um, and I think you need to, you know, I don't want to put it in Hollywood terms, but you really need to experience a sled dog race. It may not be the Iditarod, but any kind of sled dog race and knowing what sled dogs do, um, that they are, this is their thing. Okay. Um, and you know, racing dogs, it's just, that's, that's what they do. So I think the misconception that I think a lot of people have is, you know, you're making them do that. And I just, you can't, you know, the dog is not going to be made to do that. I've seen, I've seen dogs that they go, I'm tired. I'm not going right. And I've seen teams while they just had one last year that he was in the lead and the dogs just decided they weren't going to run anymore. So they all said, Nope, I'm not doing it. So I really think that's 
um, the misconception that a lot of the general public have. Um, and, you know, if I ever thought that there was some of those issues, I probably wouldn't be involved in it. So, um, so I, that, I don't know any other myths. I mean, it's, it's a race. Um, it's a very cool race that's still going on. Uh, there's a lot of dogs out there. There's a lot of people that, you know, make this happen. There's a ton of volunteers. There's um, all these villages that are a part of it. There's, you know, the planes that you have to, there's tons of organizations. So, um, but I would say that's probably the biggest misconception. How would mushers describe what you do? Uh, Well, I think it depends on the race. (laughs) because um, certainly I did a rod because there's 40 of us. Um, Sometimes we'll see the same, you know, if we're depending on the year and the weather. Um, Last year I got stuck in one checkpoint, so I didn't see, yeah, I I saw mushers once and then not again, right? Um, But other years I'll see them, you know, and it's great, right? Because then you can see how they're doing, what are these dogs, even... If you see them enough times, um, you can remember some of the dogs' names, and so that's. I think they appreciate that, but but also it's tough, right? There's a lot of mushers, a lot of dogs, a lot of vets. So something like a long distance race, especially the Iditarod, it's difficult to have that. Now um, the quest, there's you know you follow the teams. There's not as many players, um, not as many vets, so definitely you're going to get that. You know these vets that you see. Um, the stage stop race, those more sprint races, uh, I really enjoy those because these are formulated as these guys go out. Um, all these mushers know there's not many vets. Uh, there's four on that team that I just was uh, had been to. They know us all. Um, we are working with them every day. We're working with those dogs because they get breaks. So that's the other thing with those these stage races they have a pool of dogs they can run as many as 10 out of uh, a pool of 14 and dogs that need rest they get rest and then you know we can check to see if there's a certain muscle pull where they have to um, massage and treat and and all that so those are in my field what I do with sports medicine and you know again it's like um People running, uh, you know, a long distance race or triathletes or whatever, you have that team of, um, you know, physiotherapists or massage therapists. So we're kind of their team, right? So I think those are much more involved with the vet crew, you know, um, this way. The vets on the Iditarod, we're just making sure, right? We don't have any tired dogs. So we're going through them because when you get sleep deprived mushers, I think they really. Hopefully they appreciate the veterinarians coming in and saying, okay, this is what we got, right? So so I think, it, it, you know, um, there's probably an array of uh, thoughts and what the mushers think of us. Uh, some of them think that uh, we're, we're hugely like an asset, and some of them are <laughs> they're just slowing, slowing them down a little bit, depending, right? So... Um, I would like to think it's all warm and fuzzy, but um, we're a necessity. I would say they would probably think we're a necessity, but um, 
and and some would think we they learn a ton from us, but others maybe you know when they're trying to get to the next checkpoint and we have to you know make sure we're checking all the dogs or making sure they're eating right, <laughs> especially with a sleep deprived musher, it might not be so. Yeah, so I've, there's different emotions, and I'm only telling you this because over the years I've seen that. The last great race has been around for decades. As this episode is being released, staff, volunteers, and dog teams alike are preparing to celebrate the Iditarod's 50th anniversary, a momentous milestone for an event that has become as deeply ingrained in Alaska's DNA as the shimmering white snow itself. Sled dog races have been popular throughout the world since the 1800s, but it wasn't always this way. There was a time where dog sledding was the popular means of transportation in the Arctic climates. And actually, it still is in some places. So what kind of jobs did sled dogs have before races like the Iditarod began? They were a huge thing. I mean, they hauled freight. They were mail carriers, you know, before there was snow machines. The Iditarod serves as a tribute to sled dogs of the past. Some of these dogs and their mushers risked their own lives to save the lives of others. And these great feats inspired a brand new generation. Just as with many of the original working dog breeds, most of their jobs have been replaced by man-made equipment and machinery. Even though most of these dogs no longer have jobs, their drive to work has not lessened. These dogs live to run. It is their passion and their purpose. Although the Iditarod sled dogs maybe some of the world's most elite canine athletes, this race is not without risk. What is the, what's probably the number one reason or one, number one cause that dogs get, actually get pulled? Is it dehydration? Is it a sprained elbow? Is it? So that's a good question because there's been a lot of research on this. Um, and I don't have the exact um, years, but um, I know this because um, as a, a rehab sports medicine uh, specialist, uh, you know, it's important to know what goes on with these sporting dogs. But yeah, the number one um, is, you know, they call it orthopedic. So it's not specially or specific, but it is uh, shoulder strain um, is really it. So we can determine, you know, specific muscles, but it's, you know, again, a strain. Be sure to stay with us. When we return, we speak with Iditarod CEO Rob Burbach and get his take on the race. And we explore how animal rights activists are working to have an impact on the Iditarod. Royal Canin delivers precise nutritional solutions so your dog can perform at their very best level. The individual health of every dog is as unique as they are. However, these health needs are often characteristic of their size, breed, or lifestyle. Each individual recipe is formulated to deliver the exact level of natural antioxidants, vitamins, fiber, prebiotics, and minerals that are essential to your pet's unique health needs. Discover how Royal Canin products can help every pet enjoy its best health possible. To achieve a perfect balance of nutrients for each dog, they rely on an extensive network of canine experts across the globe, including veterinarians, universities, dog professionals, and their own research and development center in France. Royal Canin helps your dogs train and perform at their full potential. To learn more about Royal Canin, visit them on the web at royalcanin.com. Highland Canine Training offers affordable and proven dog training solutions to resolve even the most difficult of dog problems. 
Founded in 2006, Highland Canine Training also offers quality working dogs to meet the increasingly demanding requirements of today's military and law enforcement agencies. In addition, they offer first-class canine education programs at their school for dog trainers. So far, they've hosted students from over 30 different countries. The School for Dog Trainers offers affordable financing and accepts GI Bill and VA benefits. The Service Dog Training Division at Highland Canine Training develops and trains some of the best service dogs in the industry and offers worldwide delivery. Their commitment to customer service and support continues to set them apart from the competition and makes them a leader in the industry. Visit HighlandK9.com or call 866-200-2207 to learn more and see the difference. The creation of an Iditarod sled dog requires great amounts of care, training, passion, diligence, and love. These magnificent animals are the focal point of their musher's life. And as we have seen, significant amounts of scientific data and care go into optimizing their well-being, both on and off the trail. We spoke with Rob Erbach, CEO of the Iditarod, to learn about his experience getting involved in the race and how the Iditarod executives mediated some of the unique challenges associated with the 2020 race. This is my first year to ride, so in this role, and you know, I was amazed that most of the dogs that came in the finish looked like they could turn around and go a thousand miles back to Anchorage and never bother or quitting. So, yeah, they're kind of upset the race is over. So that's really the cool thing for me is, you know, people don't realize is the dogs are are doing what they're, they're, they were bred and built to do, and, um, you know, it's just, it's hard to relate to it because your average pet certainly, you know, has no shot. I mean, you know, PETA will say things like, Rob doesn't understand, you know, all dogs are emotionally and biologically the same. And I'll say, well, if that were true, then I'm sure Chihuahua would love to run me a dinner ride, but I'm pretty sure Chihuahua's not going to make it. So you've got to understand the special, you, you obviously know breeds, and so there's such variance uh, in breeds. The modern-day Alaskan Husky has become a combination of breeds, all selectively chosen for their stamina, speed, strength, health, and personality. These dogs are born for their job. This much is clear. But what about the mushers? It takes a special kind of individual to persevere through the elements, braving the obstacles that the wild Alaskan wilderness throws at them along the way. These mushers do all of this while simultaneously caring for and monitoring the health of up to 16 dogs. So what makes an Iditarod musher? You know, I, I think that, um, you know, we are sort of the anecdote to the thumb generation and for you're disconnected with, you know, what, what it means to be human. You know, think about how we live on our phones and screens and, and connectivity, but there's nothing more sort of primal about crossing the Alaskan wilderness within for those of you that are, you know, dog people, uh, their their relationship with the dogs and you see it up close is just absolutely extraordinary. So the 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 challenge, you know, and, and I've been in the sports business and so what I do say is I've been to Super Bowls and Final Fours and World Series games and, and three Olympics, but there's nothing that really compares to this. Um, it's just gritty, it's pure, it's authentic, and if you want to be inspired, 
you know, follow the Iditarod. There's trials and tribulations along the way. Um, you know, there's things in the race change uh, dramatically over the course of the day. It is an event that takes uh, incredible endurance, incredible determination. And mushers are um, are are tough people, man. They're just uh, you know, they're part Magellan. They're you know part strategists. Uh, they're meteorologists, uh, they're MacGyvers, uh, but they're all super tough people. And their ability to deal with whatever nature throws them, whatever um, the competitors show them, and keeping, staying attuned to their dogs and understanding, you know, how they, how they connect and lead their dogs physically and emotionally and holistically from a wellness standpoint, the combination, there's just nothing like it. There's no comparable. And I've, you know, uh, I've been around athletes and sports for a long time. And I, in my view, it's been rising comparable. From its inception, the Iditarod has been one of the most momentous dog sporting events in the world. Mushers travel from all over the globe with their dog teams to partake in the race diligently training for months or years to prepare for the days they will spend out on the Iditarod Trail. Although the race itself is full of surprises, no one could have foreseen the events that would unfold during the 2020 event. Yeah, so you mentioned the coronavirus and, and, and that impact and how things had to be moved, and I saw um, um, online it, it appeared as though they, they sort of made a checkpoint i can't remember which one it was but uh, they took an older older building went in cleaned it out put a wood, had a wood stove set up and had a place for those mushers and it um you know so what was that like what kind of impact did that have how, how, you know how was was that a last minute scramble or did you have any time to plan for that or well everything was changing hour by hour so i spent uh, in daily contact with the, uh, the medical authorities the chief uh, medical officer of Alaska. I was on a, a, a call with the governor. I was on a call with both senatorial offices. Uh, we, you know, what was just enveloping as the race took off. So we ended up um, navigating around villages. You're right. You saw that. That was old Chactuwik. We had to, uh, you know, navigate around other communities as well. So we had to uh, alter the trail to uh, get around any population center. And there's, you know, these are really small, you know, 80, 100 people, you know, villages, or in the case of, uh, you know, a, a white mountain or safety, hardly any people around, but there's some. And we were uh, super diligent regarding uh, our hygiene, and we had flown out um, disinfecting wipes and spray bottles and um, uh, hand sanitizer and left that with those communities that we didn't use. Um, so we, we were we were making these adjustments and and we scaled down our crew so folks had to work double and triple shifts that normally were getting relieved. You know our veterinarians instead of being replaced um, with fresh vets were staying on the trail longer. So we, we had to stretch um, our troops uh, significantly because we weren't flying anyone in from the lower 48 as we normally have. You know it's. There's about 1,500 volunteers that, that worked the race, and you know, we had to do that with less this year because we discouraged um, lower 48 travel into Alaska uh, for the event and, and 
pare down our staff to uh, mission critical and essential. And so, you know, some of the media people, um, photography, those kind of services, we really had to stretch. And, you know, I had to, you know, our insider crew um, is largely Washington State-based, and there was some rumors they'd be locked out of the state. They got, you know, families and kids, and, you know, schools were breaking out, and some of those folks had to return. So we had to really cut our insider coverage a little bit short towards the end. I had to step up personally in a few cases and, and, and make things happen. So um, we improvised. And kind of like what a musher would, you know, they mushers, uh, you know, manage through difficulties and weather changes and broken sleds and getting lost on the trail. And so much happens that they never contemplated. We had, you know, if you follow the race closely, you saw the Elam 11 tried to leave twice and got hemmed in by storms. Mm-hmm. If you didn't, we had a helicopter, uh, Blackhawk helicopter rescue three that got stuck in kind of a flood. Um, so we had, a. Uh, uh, enough chaos and, and to manage through that, that, that made everything more challenging. And then when you rope on the virus on top of that, uh, you know, I think it qualifies as you know, the people that have been around for 25 and 30 years has made it the most challenging race ever. The Iditarod is an event held near and dear to the hearts of many. All over the world, it has become a significant part of Alaska's identity bringing thousands together from across the globe to watch as world-class sled dog teams race across the Arctic tundra in a contest of time, passion, and will. But not everyone views the Iditarod this way. In more recent years, animal rights activist groups such as PETA have taken a forceful stance against the great race. Great. My name is Chuck Towski, and I'm the spokesperson for Anchorage Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram since 1980. Been involved in the race since 78 when I did the sports and news at Channel 2 in Anchorage. What I can tell you is that the sled dogs are world-class athletes and treated as such. Uh, pampered would be maybe too strong a word because they're rough and tough because it's that kind of a race. However, uh, all of them are given dry, warm straw at every checkpoint. If, uh, if they get a little tired or something, there's 16 dogs. You can only go as fast as your slowest dog. So what they'll do is take the dog, put it in the sled basket in a lovely little zippered bag, and then at the very next checkpoint, one of the 55 volunteer veterinarians will examine that dog. And if the dog's just a little poopsed out or something, well, they'll send them back to Anchorage and everything's fine. So they are uh, have premium care uh, without any exception within uh, the sporting world, uh, especially in the canine world. Uh, there is a false narrative out there with a group that claims to be animal rights representatives. They are not. These are the PETA people, and the way I put it is people enthusiastically terminating animals because they want to kill the Iditarod and they're experts at killing. There's no question about it. Uh, the Virginia Department of Agriculture every month, every year, indicates how many animals are taken in by PETA and what happens to them. To date, since 1998, they have killed purposefully, many of them adoptable young animals, nearly 43,000. Let that one sink in for you. That is absolutely dreadful. They have no kennel facilities at their one and only location. The public's not invited. You can look at the internet and type in PETA adoption hours, you won't find any. They have a lot of guts to come after the Iditarod where the dogs are really respected and cared for and loved. Shame on them. Chuck has served as a spokesperson for Anchorage, Alaska Dodge Jeep Ram for over 30 years. And the dealership has been a top sponsor for the Iditarod since 1980. 
Within a week of conducting this interview, however, Anchorage Dodge Jeep Ram pulled their sponsorship for the first time in decades. The pulling of this sponsorship occurred after PETA insistently targeted the parent company by sending over a quarter of a million emails, developing television ads, and partaking in public protests across America. One of these protests even included the public destruction of a Chrysler minivan, while PETA members dressed in dog costumes beat the vehicle with mallets shouting, Organizations like PETA have never been directly involved in the Iditarod, and unfortunately, many of their claims are contaminated with inaccuracies. The approach they have taken with Iditarod sponsors, however, has become so volatile in recent years that some major organizations have been forced to retract their support. Rob Erbach, CEO of the Iditarod, is no stranger to PETA and their incredibly hostile approach to the race. As one of PETA's targets, he has experienced this aggression firsthand, but has no intentions of submitting to their belligerence. Um, you know, they're 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 uh, a formidable force, and there's just such misinformation out there. So spread the word that the Diderot people are people of uh, who really uh, understand uh, dog exercise physiology and thought leadership in that field. You know, more than any, and you know, they they say. You know, God, you know, dogs are freezing to death, and the reality is that the race course is, is too warm. You know, that's the bigger problem. So there's just so much uh, misinformation out there. In the modern age, misinformation runs rampant. Between social media, the Internet, and cable TV, it can be difficult to find the truth unless you experience it yourself. As you can, as you can imagine, you get a lot of calls, you never know, you know, Peter's I'm sure is uh, you know is you know watches our inside our live screen 24 hours a day and tries to post stuff that you know they don't you know they have no idea what they're talking about but they'll post stuff they think the public will resonate with and, and they do it so anyway that's what we deal with. <laughs> couple couple questions sort of leading back to the beginning of our conversation because um, we we dealt with it a lot while we were there it was, it was a little shocking. Um, and that's, you know, what kind of impact do you feel like that these animal rights activists are having on the sport? And do you see the popularity of it declining or rising or, you know, where does it stand? Well, you know, I guess, um, animal rights activists do put more attention on the sport. So from that standpoint, if people, uh, are smart enough to understand that their campaign is, um, a campaign of misinformation that has a massive distance uh, with the truth uh, that is factually uh, incorrect. You know, the, the campaign, if you go on to, to Peter's website, it'll say, gee, if a Diderot dog is lucky enough to survive the race, they're crippled for life. Well, if that were true, then no dog would run the race twice. But the reality is that almost every dog over 80% on the start line is a, is a veteran dog who's already run the race multiple times. The tension runs high between supporters of the Iditarod and animal rights activists such as PETA. Although PETA maintains that countless dogs die during the Iditarod, the reality is much different. While conducting our research for the episode, the world-class care that these sled dogs receive year-round was made abundantly clear. This care extends to an even greater extent during the race itself. 
when veterinarians are checking dogs around the clock for days on end, and each team's care is being heavily scrutinized and monitored. The narrative that PETA portrays to the public, however, seems to be a different story. I mean, I think it's an organization that has no moral compass, that, you know, uh, two weeks at dinner ride dogs, the dog race ran, you know, I mean, I don't know how many dogs PETA killed. They, in, their, in, their kill, in their kill mills that they own, process, and they basically, um, you know, uh, uh, don't have any real efforts to have run an adoption service. Uh, but if you look at the records in the state of Virginia, um, they have a kill a disproportionately high amount of the doctors, dogs they take in uh, for what they tell you is an adoption, but they're generally killed within 24 hours. So it's just a massive irony, and um, it's just unfortunate because I think that I tried to engage them and say, hey, are you guys interested in animal welfare? Why don't you, why don't you uh, do a research project with us? Why don't you come to uh, Diderot and, and see what it's like to be in these kennels, to see what it's like, see how these dogs are like on the trail, but they, they have shown no general interest in, in doing so. Yeah, I, I, the one that gets me is their um, their whole argument that they're forcing these dogs to run. Uh, you know, Didi and, and I were talking about that when we had the opportunity to meet her, and I'm like, well, if you're forcing these dogs to run so much, why do you need this big aluminum brake on the back of this sled? <laughs> you, know? you know, you know, it's funny about that brake. So I'm watching these dogs coming into Nome, and you know, we kind of have to grab the sled, put the brake on, and the power, half the time they're going to pull the thing out. I mean, and they're already running a thousand miles. So yeah. how does how does somebody support the Iditarod? Um, you know, because again, that's that's our objective with this podcast. So, you know, I'd love for people to hear you kind of explain, you know, as an individual, how do they support the Iditarod? And, and I know you guys have lost some, some sponsors. You know, if there's big companies out there listening or some other CEO of a big corporation, how would they sponsor uh, support the yeah, Iditarod? Yeah, you know, we're, we're, we'd love for them to reach out to us, but as individuals, you can support us in a number of ways. Uh, you can be a member. Um, off our website, you can be a subscriber to Insider. You're certainly, we, you can make a donation off of our website. Um, you know, I'm, you, you can find me, the CEO, Rob Burback. It's U R B A C H, um, and happy to engage anyone who's interested in, in supporting us. We do need uh, support from our community. Um, it's a it's a pretty expensive race the way we do it, which is putting safety first. Um, and we think that we have a, a very unique event that provides impact and meaning to uh, a lot of people's lives. The Iditarod doesn't just provide meaning to the lives of its mushers, volunteers, communities, and viewers. It has been a noteworthy supporter of the Make-A-Wish Foundation for years, allowing children with a dream to do something that they may otherwise never have the opportunity to do. As a business or individual, it is possible to support the race itself or a musher of your choosing. With so many mushers competing in the Iditarod each year, how does one decide who to support? And, it, and if you are looking at a musher, look for somebody who's not only performance in the race, but lifestyle is something that um, you are proud of, that represents you. So I don't know, because I remember telling... Um, several sponsors. I can't ever guarantee you I can win, but I can guarantee you, you'll never be embarrassed by my dog care. Yeah, and, and in that, in a person who 
quality of personality and their ethic with their animals is um, something that you can um, feel proud of. You could use that person 12 months a year in any kind of um, situation that you may want to include them in and always be proud of them and not have to be defensive of somebody else's poor behavior. For nearly 50 years, the Iditarod has been changing lives, creating dreams, and celebrating the history, strength, and determination of the sled dog. The Iditarod dogs are a breed unlike any other. They are the peak of canine performance and an image of what dogs are truly capable of when we prioritize their care, health, and training. They are the ultimate example of what is possible when humans allow dogs to utilize their God-given instincts. The last great race isn't just any dog sporting event, as anyone who has ever had the opportunity to be a part of it will tell you. The way I describe it, it's a celebration of the history of the Arctic and a partnership with dogs and man. I want to thank you for joining us for this episode on our journey to explore what truly makes an Iditarod sled dog. How these elite canine athletes are cared for by their mushers and vets, and ultimately what it takes to succeed when you're at the peak of performance. In our next episode, hear the experience of a rookie musher that competed in the last great race in a very unexpected way. This episode was produced and edited by Jason Ferguson. Story by Stasha Dempster. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast for more great episodes and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram.